So the sermon text is from the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bible with you, great. If you have a Bible app with you, fantastic. Otherwise, you can just listen along as I read. And I'm going to um, be reading from the New International Version, like the original New International Version, the Wayback Machine. Um, so there may be some words different than in your Bible, but Philippians 2, 12 through 18. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Lord God, we ask that you would open up your word to us. Enable us through the Holy Spirit to take it in, to apply it, and then, most of all, Lord, to live it out. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I love the Olympics. Summer and Winter Olympics. There are so many great sports to watch. Um, and then a lot of other non-sports like diving and figure skating and gymnastics. We can have a whole conversation about which are sports and which are non-sports. But I will fight to the death anybody who says figure skating is a sport because there is no cross-checking in figure skating. So. You, you, you put guys with hockey sticks out there in figure skating to check them into the boards, different question. But, um, but gymnastics is one that especially holds my attention because it is the one event every four years that all of us become experts at. So overweight, out of shape guys like me sit on the couch and we observe gymnasts doing all of these moves like the iron cross, flares, and one and a half pike tuck with a ham sandwich dismount stuff. It's really cool. And we have no clue what's going on until Tim Daggett goes on to instant replay and slow-mo. You know, because everything looks fine while that guy is sprinting down the whatever it is that they call it that they sprint down. And then sprinting down there and, and 
springs off the, the other thing, I don't know what to call it, and, and, and does the flip in the air and lands. And unless he lands on his face, you go, all right, that was really good. But when you slow things down, that's when us couch experts come into play. Oh, just a little separation between his feet. Oh, tiny step. <coughs> Sorry, excuse me. We hear things like that and we We know it's not right. When, when you slow things down, you be, begin to see the flaws in the person's performance and training. And a similar thing happens when I slow down the replay and look at the times when I think that I'm obeying what God wants for me to do. When, when I look and, and, and I see what motivates and empowers my obedience I see pretty quickly that there are a variety of motives at work within me. People obey God for a variety of reasons. Guilt, fear. Very often, we, we do what we've been told God wants us to do because it is the best thing to keep up appearances for our family or our friends or our co-workers. Let's not any, let anybody else see the dirty laundry, right? For whatever reason, one thing is clear, whether I'm obeying 50% or 75% of the time, most often when I watch that slow-mo replay, it is 100% Joel. And that is the exact thing that Paul is writing to address the believers in Philippi. In Philippians, Paul is encouraging these Christians to rediscover the motive for the Christian life. Jesus' humility, his pouring out of himself, his emptying of himself, we read just a few verses earlier his sacrificial death to, to redeem the world and the powerful resurrection life that are all ours because of God's love for us. And in this section of chapter 2, Paul shows what our lives and actions look like because of God's empowering presence in us. We read in verse 13, For it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. So we're going to see today that through Jesus, God empowers our lives and actions. And there are several practical outcomes of this very empowering presence in our lives. And all of them help to form a fundamental foundation of our place, our firm place as God's children. We're loved. We're fully accepted. We're completely forgiven. And that foundation allows us to consider the first outcome that we are empowered to work. In the second part of verse 12, 
Paul instructs us to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You no doubt have heard a lot about what that means. A lot of wild speculation, some people, about what it means. But I think, though, as we look here and, and, and as we dig in, you're going to discover there are several things that it does not mean. So let's get those out of the way first. First of all, it doesn't mean that we're saved by working hard or living a good life. And that's clear as we read the rest of Philippians and all the rest of Paul's letters. Paul didn't mean that we help out with our salvation. That God does some, and that we do some, and that in a shuffle step kind of way, we make it all the way there. Our salvation is completely and utterly dependent on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection alone, and that's it. There's not one thing that we can do to save ourselves or to contribute to our salvation. And just by the way, that's good news, because there's not one thing that you can do that will cause you to lose that salvation either. That free grace is ours because of the eternal love that God has for us through Jesus. But what Paul is saying is that a life that's built on this foundation of grace shows results. There are real differences that happen in the lives of people who are empowered by God. They, they work the same whether someone is there or not. So look at the first part of verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. Basically, he's saying that, that one sign of this empowered life is that the results of salvation show forth all the time, not just when some people are present. Now, it, it's true for all of us that our behavior changes depending on who we are with. What's appropriate for a Friday night out with friends, for example, might not be appropriate in an office setting. That's, that's not the kind of sameness of obedience that Paul is talking about. He's talking about a life that's characterized by living out a fundamental foundation of acceptance. So that's the key to understanding verse 12. It's not that we work for our salvation or that we work to maintain our salvation. He's saying quite literally, work out of your state of salvation. He tells us to, to work, to, to show results from this fundamental foundation of acceptance that is ours through Christ Jesus. I once worked with a, a very wise uh, pastor who told me this about salvation. It's all been worked out. It just needs to be worked in. He meant that all the work is done. 
And we need to accept that state for ourselves and show results from it. So what's this fear and trembling thing <clears throat> that Paul talks about? <clears throat> well, again, it, it, it's not... It's not fear and trembling as if we're going to be struck down by God. That if I don't perform well, God's going to be displeased or reject me. A much better way to think about this is that what characterizes those empowered by God is that they work with wonder and amazement. And this, this wonder and amazement comes when we stop to think, as Paul does here, that it's God himself who's at work within us. The God of the universe, the God who made everything, is at work in you. God is at work in you. Doesn't that strike you as amazing? So it means fundamentally that we are free to obey. Before Jesus, we were just simply unable to do so in any sort of meaningful way. We relied on all sorts of power sources to help us make the right choice instead of sourcing our obedience on God. Those who know and trust Jesus, we can obey freely. We don't need to be paralyzed by our choices. God is at work in you. God is at work in you, enabling you to work in a way that honors him. So when you're confronted with a difficult choice or a difficult situation, one perhaps where both courses of action seem like they're perfectly good and perfectly reasonable things to do, It's okay to take action. Maybe you're trying to decide whether it's time to talk with somebody about the love and the grace of Jesus, or maybe it's more valuable to let that relationship develop a little bit more before doing that. Go ahead and choose one course of action. You're not making a wrong choice. If what you choose to do maybe turns out not to be the best, you've learned something from that. And you have done nothing to thwart God's plan or to hurt your eternal standing. So many Christians get so bogged down with, oh, how do I discern God's will for this? 
from that, if the action that you take is from that, everything else is on the house. When you're tempted to sin, to do something maybe that you know full well is contrary to God's working in you, remember that your state of salvation makes it possible for you not to sin. As a Christian, sin is not inevitable. We don't have to do it. Now, I will, I will be the first to tell you that I understand the allure of sin. It's powerful. It's powerful and it's easy. It's not. It's, it's so difficult to fight temptation. But because of God's work in you, it is possible not to sin. And here at Highlands, we can experience the joy of working out collectively our state of salvation. All of us together, we're a community that has been saved so that we can work together. The people in this congregation are empowered by God to engage our community by loving others. And by doing so, we can make a significant difference here in West St. Louis County. Through things like the men's Bible study and the women's events, discussions about books, theology, current events, and outreach that we do at grocery stores and nearby housing developments, all of those are a working out of our state of salvation for the benefit of this community. Now, since God empowers us to work, and since that work points to a reality outside ourselves, it's also clear that God empowers us to shine. <clears throat> now, shining involves both illumination and pointing the way. Paul tells us that Together, God empowers us to shine as stars in the universe. Verse 15, Paul says that we are children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. mastered the mute switch. What were stars back in Paul's day? Stars didn't give much light. If you are on a, a walking around at night, say when there is a new moon out, um, and you're away from the city lights, you don't have much light to work with. ancients knew that stars could point the way. Even back then, they knew what the North Star was. They knew how to use the stars to navigate around seas and to navigate around the world. They knew. Stars point the way. I had a friend once who 
to poke holes in the blackness and the darkness that, that, that settles around us, that settles around people that we know, that's, that settles around this entire messed up world. We hear about yet another mass shooting in California this morning. Targeting Asian people. And we stop and we think, is this all there is? And friends, it is into that that we are called to shine like stars pointing the way. So we do that, according to verse 14, without complaining. I'd like to complain about complaining for a little bit. You know, it would be so much easier to raise children if kids would obey without complaining. Oh, so much easier. Not a day goes by when I don't hear, oh man, or, but Ben made the mess, or uh, why do I have to do it, or sometimes it's the trump card, I hate my family, this is horrible. Complaints just wear out the person being complained to. They just wear on you because what are they doing? They're just, they're, they're a way of saying, fine, I'll do it, but I won't take responsibility for it and I won't like it. They're a way of saying what you want from me and what you ask of me is something that I just don't care about. but I'll do it to silence you, get you off my back. Their way of saying what really what I want is the most important thing. Now also in verse 14, <clears throat> Paul tells us to avoid arguing. <laughs> um, that's what it says in the NIV. Um, we, would, we would really like to pair those together, right? Complaining and arguing, because we, we think that we think of arguing as bickering, right? Um, and we think about kids bickering back and forth. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> Paul doesn't let us off the hook that easy. Um, the word that Paul uses for arguing is really more about rationalizing, explaining something away, having a good reason for it. Boy, here in America, we are expert rationalizers. Yeah? Look at things from a variety of angles debate the finest points and we talk 
talk, talk. I mean, my best friend and I once had a protracted, I mean, long debate about whether the best way to get to Michigan involved going through Iowa. <laughs> right? <laughs> He's from Iowa. Guess which side he was on. Yeah. Um, It was a ridiculous debate. I mean, aside from the fact that I was right, it was a ridiculous debate. And what we learn here in Philippians is that our tendency to, to talk, to reason with each other, to debate and to rationalize <clears throat> dims the light that we give off as we work out God's empowerment in our lives. If we're saved completely, we need to be completely sold out to God's will and his desires for us rather than trying to rationalize our way either into it or out of it. So God empowers us to work and he empowers us to shine if we can get our agendas out of the way and that's tough, but we're also empowered to sacrifice. Second half of verse 16 reads like this, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad I rejoice with all of you, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. <clears throat> Paul views his entire life as sacrifice and, and characterizes the life empowered by God as one of sacrifice. <clears throat> you know, Paul, I think, probably would would be one of those that joins me on the couch and enjoys the Olympics. Paul was a very big sports fanatic. And if ESPN had existed in the first century, I don't think Paul would have gotten nearly as much done. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, he would have just sat next to me and go, oh, yeah, he didn't get completely horizontal on that last iron cross. But Paul does get something about athletic competition. He gets that there's got to be a point to it. It might be fitness, it might be winning for some, it's just finishing, whatever it is, there needs to be a point or an objecting, otherwise it's just a big nothing. And in verse 17, Paul says that he is emptying himself as a drink offering so that the Philippians' faith can be complete. Now, the drink offering or libation was the pouring out of wine, and you usually added a pinch of salt to it. Um, you added salt to most everything that you sacrificed in, um, in the Old Testament system. And it was added along with offerings of flesh and grain. 
some Jewish sources say it was, it was added as a seal of approval for a sacrifice well made. And Paul tells the Philippians that it's his joy to be poured out that way. As a seal of approval on the life and the conduct and the character of the Philippian Christians. So we can count it a joy to sacrifice on behalf of others. Sacrificing includes our giving. Now, I'm not going to talk about money a lot. Um, But giving is an expression of joy. Members of Highlands, you have been very faithful in giving since the beginning and the founding of this church. And all of us are giving in a variety of ways. And I'll tell you, I have no idea who gives what. Don't want to know. Because that's not the point. We need to give to others. We need to do that because it's an expression of the love that we have received. And now we express to others around us. So that I hope it's clear that I'm not just talking about money. I think it's easy for many of us here in St. Louis to think giving money. No. I'm talking about joyously giving of yourself. Your whole self. Serve in our community and to serve in the neighborhood in which you live. We experience joy when we show appreciation to teachers at a local school. When maybe we care for others' kids who come into our homes. And at work, a variety of places, all of it should be done out of a place of joy. And we take joy in others' sacrifice. Paul says in verse 18, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. It's so wonderful to see others joyfully serving, joyfully sacrificing. It's wonderful to see others sacrifice for us. Now, it's... In some ways, for me at least, it's way more challenging to receive the sacrifice of others directed toward me with joy because we are so conditioned to be self-reliant and self-sufficient. And when others sacrifice and give to us, we become overwhelmed as if we are indebted to that person or if there's something defective in us. It's challenging to accept those things with grace and joy. In the year 2000, 
Haley Joel Osment started, starred in the movie Pay It Forward. And yes, I realize 2000 is 23 years ago. <clears throat> but in that movie, he played a troubled 12-year-old boy who takes very seriously an assignment by his social studies teacher to come up with a plan that's going to benefit the world. And he hatches this plan to do good to people in advance, asking them in turn, after they receive it, to just pay it forward. And to do that for three other people who do that for three other people and so on. Probably some of you at one time or another have experienced this in the Starbucks line where the car ahead of you is paid for your order. And it's, it's a wonderful, touching movie, and at the same time, it's heart-wrenching. Because the only power at work in this little boy's plan is a kind of blind and starry-eyed hope. It's a hope in the dark. thing that's heartening about the movie is that it portrays this character working, shining, sacrificing without any assurance and without any real power that it's going to work. But here as followers of Jesus, we have been empowered by God himself. And, and that's the ultimate reason we have to work, to shine, and to sacrifice. And this empowering presence is a more sure reason to, to pay it forward, as it were. We work hard to benefit others in our fellowship and in our community, but we don't do so out of blind hope. We don't do so as a shot in the dark. We do so as people whose darkness has been pierced by the shining light of Jesus. God has spoken our salvation. God has redeemed the entire creation we see around us for himself. And our lives are an outworking and outgrowth of that fundamental reality. And our obedience is a way of extending an invitation of that joyful life to others. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that you have given us such a firm hope, a sure hope that enables us to live and to love joyously, to hold out true hope to those that we interact with every day. Kindle that hope within us. Fan it into flame within us that our hearts might burn until we share it with others around us. We pray all this in Jesus' name.